and welcome to Bunker Start Your Week. I'm Roz Taylor and joining me is Alex Andreu. Hello, Alex. Good morning, Roz. Welcome back. Thank you. I actually got back from holiday on Saturday and as we were flying over the channel, I looked down at the port of Dover and I thought how peaceful it looked, how wrong I was. Six migrants died that day when their overloaded boat capsized. The tourists themselves dubbed last week Small Boats Week. They made a series of announcements supposed to tackle the problem, but instead the drownings and the fiasco over the Bibby Stockholm barge dominated the news. Meanwhile, the number of migrants arriving in the UK on small boats has risen substantially in the past few days, more than 1,600 since Thursday. Alex, is this now becoming the defining issue for Rishi Sunak? Yes, it is. And bizarrely, it is actually the Tories who have pushed this into the spotlight, who have made this a huge issue. If you look at polling from you know, six months ago or a year ago, this was way down people's priorities, as it were. But after relentlessly pushing it, the Tories have basically made it a top five issue, and they're now hoist by their own petard. But I have to say, I think the heat around this will exhaust itself, especially as you know the weather gets worse after the summer and the the crossings largely stop or at least dramatically reduce as they always do over winter when the weather is rougher. I mean, the next election will come down to the economy ultimately. Unless the economic fundamentals improve significantly, this government will not be re-elected because of something it did or didn't do over small boat crossings. But these fiascos on their favourite area, they sort of add to the general impression of incompetence. They compound the feeling that even in areas where they're seen as strong, you know, they they couldn't organize a, a fire in a match factory. You mentioned the capsized boat. I hear uh, from several reports that a lot of the people on that boat were from Afghanistan. And, and the Independent has a front page today about the Afghan scheme ending, you know, to apply for a visa. And while it has taken only a handful of people, and thousands are apparently still stuck with no way to apply because of its ridiculous operations, we, we hear of cases when people who helped us during the war, they're having to leave Afghanistan to apply at a consulate outside, then made to return to Afghanistan in order to gather evidence or wait to be processed, which is just utterly ridiculous. So you have a really direct link of us failing to create safe and legal routes, failing in our international duty, and those people now ending up on a barge, and those people now ending up drowned in the channel. I mean, it seems to me that Sunak has basically ended up with everything pinned on the weather. You know, if the weather is unkind to crops, it'll push up food inflation. If the winter is particularly cold, energy bills will be high and energy prices will do the same. If the winter is mild in the channel, crossings will continue. If voters suffer floods or heat waves or fires, they will turn against his climate policies. So he has sort of bet everything on a really kind constellation of weather events for the next year. And it seems to me a recipe for disaster. 
And it's a failure on multiple fronts, isn't it? It's a failure to process the applications of migrants who are already here, which creates mm. the overcrowding situation, which in turn created the Bibi Stockholm fiasco and the issues with overcrowding in hotels and where mm. to mm. put the migrants. And then that's all the failure of all the deterrent schemes, which are supposed to put people off coming here. And I think Priti Patel over the weekend was talking again about border force employees on jet skis trying to push migrant boats back into French waters. So we're back in that territory now. The Telegraph has a leaked Home Office memo today that shows the Home Office is actually planning on the basis that the migrant so-called crisis will not be solved for at least five years. Right. And and last week we had Robert Jenrick, the immigration minister, make the astonishing admission that the backlog is part of the plan. I think this is hugely significant. He said basically that Labour's plan to process the asylum applications more efficiently will only lead to more applications. It only encourages more people to, to apply. So th- they are jamming the system because they see that as a deterrent. But it's not a deterrent because actually a jammed system encourages applications which are made in bad faith because people know they won't be removed for years and may never be removed, while an efficient processing application would encourage good faith applications. So I think it has exactly the opposite effect. The same memo, by the way, reveals that the barge, the Bibi Stockholm, would only be value for money, and I mean by that cheaper than hotels, if it housed 1,000 migrants. That's twice what the government says it will take now and four times the number it was built for. I can't imagine the health implications of that kind of crowding. The Tory backbencher Jake Berry thinks he has a solution to the problem, which is to take Britain out of the European Convention on Human Rights. Now, this is an issue that has been you know, long the dream of some on the Tory right. Once they left the EU, the ECHR was the next stage. What is the thinking behind that? His thinking is that, as the Tories have been desperately trying to do, for many, many uh, months now, they're trying to find the next Brexit. And his thinking is that maybe this is something else that people from disparate political traditions and different regions with different problems can unite behind this idea of leaving something else that is European, and it can become a sort of lightning rod that keeps that electoral college together. I mean, after the Brexit vote, I I don't particularly want to predict, you know, a rational reaction from voters to anything, I'm afraid. It is obviously much more complicated than is being presented. Both the deal, the economic, the trade and cooperation agreement that we have with the EU hinges on our continued membership of the European Convention of Human Rights. And perhaps even more importantly, the Good Friday Agreements also hinge on our continuing membership of the European Convention of Human Rights. So I don't know exactly in the Tories' minds who are pushing this, I don't know precisely how they see leaving this other international convention 
on which a lot of other international agreements hang without creating even more turmoil for our economy, without creating even more of a situation where the cohesion of the United Kingdom, Kingdom breaks down and you know, makes the, the prospect of Scotland leaving and, and the United Ireland, etc., more likely because of that constitutional upheaval. So my sense of it is that it is more of a pitch by that wing of the party so that they can take power after the next general election has led to the Tories being obliterated and sort of make that their rallying call you know, for a sort of maybe Braverman leadership bid for the Conservative Party in opposition. But the, I think that's the central point of it. It is very much an opposition plan, something that you can promise but not have to deliver, rather than a government plan, which is why the bits of the Tory party which are involved in government at, at the moment are not coming out in support of this. It's only backbenchers that do so. What have we heard from Labour about small boats? Not much. There was, a, I think, a slightly confected furor last week about Stephen Kinnock saying that that uh, Labour would still use barges. I mean, his answer precisely was actually that if Labour took over, they would inherit a situation where people were possibly on a barge and that they would get them out of barges and out uh, and into hotels as quickly as practical. I guess, I mean, there's no magical way of saying the day after Labour gets elected, you know, there is somehow, somewhere, ready-made accommodation for all these people. You know, it will be a, a process of going through asylum applications, trying to do the processing much more quickly in order to reduce the backlog, and prioritising moving people out of unsuitable accommodation, basically, as quickly as possible. So making those people the first who are moved off barges or disused military barracks or marquees, which is uh, Braveman is now talking about, uh, and things like that. But, I mean, the bottom line is that, that Labour's pitch on this, as on many, many other issues, is rather unsexy because it is the promise to make government function again to make the state function again like a functioning state, you know, to process applications in an efficient way. And I think it may not be sexy, but it is the right promise on this, promising gimmicks that will solve the problem overnight. I don't think people trust them anymore. I think the central promise is to not be useless, which this lot are. And actually, I think they can deliver it because... Having civil servants who have not been battered by their employer for years will help, for instance. I mean, in, in football terms, government has lost the dressing room and they have lost the fans if, if one believes the polling, which puts them 20 points behind. So a new manager sometimes can spur the, the very same team into performing much better. Basically, the country needs a fresh start, I think, more than anything. And I think 
that fresh start and the optimism that comes from that, it can actually solve a lot of problems. It can improve productivity overnight because people will breathe. They will, you know, civil servants will not feel like the government is set against them. And I think that can make a massive amount of difference and very, very quickly. And it is what happened in 97, actually. I hope you're right. I think Starmer's going to make a big speech on immigration in September. That's been trailed. So we can mm. also, but that may well be, of course, wider, wider stuff rather than just... Yeah. I mean, the the BB Stockholm uh, story will continue, by the way, right? Because I think there's much, much more to it about when precisely and who knew that there was the contaminant. And I also, I hear from a, a contact that the BB Stockholm is really not going anywhere as a plan now because they reckon it would have to be taken apart piece by piece, cleaned and put back together to eliminate that kind of bacterial infection because of the way, you know, it can hide basically in dry parts of the system. And then as soon as they get wet, it acts as a sort of bank of bacterium that produces more. And so it really is very, very, very difficult to get rid of once it is in a closed water system like this. And I don't think we will see migrants going back on the baby Stockholm for a very, very long time. Last week was Small Boats Week. This one is apparently Health Week, which sounds optimistic, <laughs> given the doctors are on strike. Let's hope it goes better than, than Small Boats Week, right? Otherwise, we're all in trouble. Indeed. Another of Sunak's five pledges was to cut NHS waiting lists. What's happening there? Because rather than cutting waiting lists, there seems to have been a spat emerging between the Welsh government and English government. Well, I mean, I, you say there's a spat emerging. The Department of Health is basically trying to pick a fight. It probably works on a superficial sort of headline level. The Daily Mail today is obliging by making it their front page, of course, just, you know, printing verbatim whatever the government wants it to print. But NHS waiting lists are at a record 7.6 million in England. Government is blaming strikes as if it has, you know, again, as I was saying about civil servants, the government is behaving as if it has no overall responsibility as ultimate employer and policymaker in this area. Like it's only the staff's responsibility to behave as they're expected to rather than the employers, which I don't think people buy. You know, the actual bump in the statistics because of the strike, I think will come after the strike's end. Because every day lost to treatment at the moment is also lost to diagnosis. And so I think people have this notion that because operations get cancelled, they sort of get added to the queue, but they don't. Those operations that were still to happen were already part of the queue. 
they're not, you know, they're not new numbers. They're just the queue is not reducing because the operations are not happening. That much is true. But there's also much less going in at the other end because, like I said, every day the doctors strike is a day that's lost to a lot of diagnosis. So I think the real bump will come when things are resolved, doctors go back to work, and suddenly you have a rush of people seeing their doctor for a diagnosis, like what happened after COVID, and then suddenly lots of people are added to the queue. So my sense is that it will get much worse before it gets better. Now, Wales and Scotland are favourite attack targets for the Department of Health. But Population density in England is 434 people per square kilometre. In Scotland, that number is 141. In Wales, it's 150. So that's less than a third. This seems to me highly relevant in terms, for instance, of ambulance times, right? You're comparing an area that includes really heavily urbanised places like London and Birmingham to areas that are much more rural, much less accessible, much more spread over a large distance. If you want to compare Scotland or Wales, compare it to Lincolnshire or Cornwall, because it's no coincidence those areas have the worst ambulance response times in England, the worst A&E waiting averages and some of the longest waiting lists, right? So, the government is being very cheeky, very cynical, comparing apples with oranges. I hope they're pulled up on it. It will take some journalists actually finding the time, energy, and moxie to do their job. But the truth is that Wales compared to England is not a a like-for-like comparison. It's a quiet week otherwise, with Rishi Sunak still in California, enjoying the Star Wars exhibit in Disneyland, and Keir Starmer just returning, I think, from holiday in the Lake District, where he helped rescue a friend's dog. He's off to see a whiskey... Corbyn would have rescued 20, you know. (laughs) (laughs) He's off to see a whiskey distillery today with the Scottish Labour leader, Adas Sawal. But elsewhere, Hawaii has become the latest place to be devastated by wildfires. Tell us briefly about that, Alex. I mean, it's the worst wildfires in more than a century in that region. It is thought that more than 2,000 buildings have been largely destroyed since the fires broke out. The, The majority of it is around the area of Lahaina, which is on the island of Maui. Hawaii as a state is basically a collection of large and small volcanic islands. And one of those islands is Maui, a very favorite tourist destination. And basically, listening to a witness testimony today, it just seems like the Lahaina conurbation has been largely basically wiped off the map, which is awful. Thousands of people have been evacuated. More than 90 are known to have died, but everyone expects that death toll to go up significantly. It's awful. We see it all the time now. We see it more and more frequently. People with an agenda try to pretend that this stuff happens. It always happens. But I think people now understand in their bones that the frequency 
and freakishness of these weather events that we keep um, seeing is intensifying. And it seems to me that any political party that decides to set itself against that prevailing wave of sentiment that says we need to be doing more and we need to be doing it more urgently, I you know, it might it might result in electoral success in the very, very short term, but they're basically engineering their long-term wipeout. We'll see whether it has that effect on the US elections, of course. What's happening in Niger in West Africa hasn't got a lot of attention, but there's the possibility of war breaking out. The army deposed the president, who was an ally of the EU and France. What's happened to the president? Yes, so the the army deposed uh, Mohamed Bazoum. The international community reacted with condemnation, but but more importantly, I think the economic community of West African states, the so-called ECOWAS, is really seems quite intent on stopping another coup in the region from becoming permanent, because this would be, I think, the sixth in a matter of a few years. And the ECOWAS security chief, Abdel Fattah Moussa, um, has made some very, very strong statements about a possible contagion and about their determination to stop that from happening. So ECOWAS has reacted rather quickly and quite decisively they, they by with financial sanctions they've cut off financial transactions they've cut off electricity supplies into niger and even more importantly considering niger is landlocked they have closed their land borders which block imports there was a second emergency summit on this and they have activated a sort of joint military force, which is, again, very significant. And they have placed it around the border. And the the talk is that they might invade Niger to depose the military who deposed the elected government. So, I mean, it's a it's an incredibly volatile situation. And again, it underlines, in a strange way, what we were talking about, about the migrant crisis, right? Because the UK seems to only want to address pull factors, as if there's something, you know, systemic in the UK's makeup that is hugely attractive to migrants, encouraging this idea that we're a soft touch. But the truth is that the most important part of this puzzle are push factors. Within a year, we will see people fleeing Niger, crossing the channel in small boats, right? We know this. And and at that point, we will wring our hands and ask, why is this happening? We continue to absent ourselves from encouraging stability. We have slashed international aid to places like Niger, we have basically diverted the money that should be going into doing everything to keep these regions as stable as possible and to encourage their economic and social advancement and diverted it into housing migrants at home because we have created a backlog that we can't 
cope with. And those two things are related. The more we absent ourselves from our international responsibilities, the more asylum seekers will turn up at our border. Over to sport. Big event this week for those of us who are into football, and uh, regular listeners will know that I am not so much, but I think Alex is. What are our chances, the chances of the England women's football team against Australia on Wednesday? I mean, really good, I think, right? We've made it to the semi-finals, so you have to be quite optimistic. We are the European trophy holders, so you would think that we're going into this as a very, very strong contender. I mean, Australia obviously are at home, and they will have a huge amount of support from the home crowd. That will be a factor. I don't think we're going into it as underdogs, certainly. I think it's 50-50, and, and anything can happen, and I'll be rooting for the Lionesses. What else is coming up this week, briefly? The Office of National Statistics, the wage figures are out on Tuesday. Inflation figures are out on Wednesday. Now, the eye has a scoop. They say that inflation has gone down by a measly 0.1% in the latest figures, which is nowhere nowhere near what Sunak needs to stay on target for for halving it by Christmas. And even worse, they reckon inflation will rise next month because of that bump in spending that we saw in June. So that's really, really bad news. There may be developments for Donald Trump in America. Keep your ear to the ground on that one. I hear that the Georgia state case on election interference is ready to advance. And also we saw a fascinating judicial move in the January 6th case with a judge saying that the more Trump shoots his mouth off on social media, the more urgent it will become to proceed to trial expeditiously. So what the judge is doing is he's attaching a cost to Trump basically trying to you know, intimidate witnesses and, and impugn the court's impartiality by saying, the more you talk publicly about this, the more it makes it imperative for me to go to speedy trial so that I can minimize the time you have to damage the impartiality of the trial, which I think is, as a lawyer, I found that absolutely brilliant. And then on Thursday, A-level results are out. So best of luck to everyone expecting those. And I hope you get the results you want and the place you want. Finally, I hate to disappoint listeners, but the cage fight between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg (laughs) is not happening. Zuck says he's tired of the excuses from Musk and is going to focus on his day job. Alex, is it wise for two alpha males to deny their physical side (laughs) in this way? Um, Oh, God. I mean, it's such a ridiculous story. and It has such a predictable ending. Uh, You know, Musk had spent the last two months going any time, any place. And as soon as the time and place were sort of quite close to uh, to being finalized, he went, oh, no, I'm busy that day. I'm washing my hair. And even more tragically, this will mean that uh, uh, Boris Johnson won't get to uh, fight the winner, as he promised last Friday. Did he? Um, yeah, he did. God. That was his column. Um, seven figures well spent by the male there. I think 
men like those three should deny their physical side as much as humanly possible. And that's it for Start Your Week. Thanks, Alex. My pleasure. Listeners, if you enjoyed Start Your Week, remember you can support us on Patreon. For £3 a month, you'll get episodes early and ad-free, as well as a shout-out on this show. Here's Alex with today's. Huge thanks from me to Chris Riley, Joe W and John Wood. I'm Ros Taylor and thanks for listening. Join us again tomorrow for another Bunker. Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Ros Taylor with Alex Andreu. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, Start Your Week from the Bunker is a Podmasters production.